Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. And I will let the Raiders gear slide. Um, no, I, uh, man, thank you guys for that. I know I've gotten a number of messages and texts from people already, and I appreciate that uh, so much. Um, and uh, it is a great day to be together. It's the third week of family month, and uh, I'm still trying to recover a bit from that worship uh, set here. Uh, I know things are difficult sometimes to translate online, but there is something just so beautiful, whether it's the outdoor service or the indoor service, but being able to be together and uh, to, to lock arms, uh, metaphorically speaking, with uh, people in our church community is just such an incredible gift. Um, and uh, and I, I long for the day that uh, those of you that are still watching online, you're able to come back and be here in person and experience some of what we get. Um, and I'm so grateful for the team as well. They're just absolutely, the worship team is amazing. Um, I am just I can't stop sweating. Jeez, it was like seven degrees in here this morning when I got here, and now it's got to be like a balmy 72. Uh, I don't know. Um, You guys have known me long enough to know that I'm not a huge sports guy. Uh, I was ridiculed a few weeks ago for saying basketball goal instead of basketball hoop, uh, which I still stand by in my original statement. Um, I I have favorite teams, but I have favorite teams because I have favorite people. Uh, Like I support Angels baseball, obviously not because they're champions, but because my wife is an Angels fan. She's been a lifelong Angels baseball fan. Uh, I've got some great friends who have been huge. Huge Seahawks fans for years, even before it was cool to be a Seahawks fan. And because of my love for them, I've always really enjoyed uh, Seahawks football. Uh, we lived in Des Moines, Iowa for a number of years, and there is nothing, uh, there are no professional sports in uh, Iowa, not a single one. Uh, it's all minor league, and uh, I mean, just all, they have the craziest things. It's the most entertaining sports you can go to, let me tell you. Um, but uh, we became fans of the Hawkeyes while we were there because because of our deep love for friends that um, went to that school. So, you know, I'm not a huge sports guy. I'm more of a artist poet, uh, if you will. Um, and, uh, but I've got to be honest. I was so thrilled when the Astros lost yesterday, uh, as I think most of America was, even if you're not a huge sports fan, for those of you that don't know, uh, and I had to double check some of these dates because like I said, I don't have all of this stored in my head, but, uh, two years ago, uh, 2017 season, I guess, maybe more than two years ago, uh, the Astros ended up winning, uh, the world series, uh, but it came out that they had been cheating most of the season and part of the next season. And I don't really know anything about the Astros. I know very little about the sport of baseball. Uh, and uh, But there was this thing where it was like, man, that that's terrible. Like they, they cheated and they won. And all of these other teams were not able to have a chance at showing their skill because another team did something or players or individuals, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but they decided to do things in a way that wasn't okay. And then on top of that, the 
the discipline that came down from the league seemed incredibly light. There were some fines, there were some uh, some penalties as far as not being able to play a certain number of games, things like that. But everybody kind of agreed that this doesn't necessarily feel like the discipline matches uh, the mistake, the error, the, the wrongdoing. And so yesterday, as I was cooking food at some friend's house, which is my, my sport, uh, personally cooking and then eating, it's like a whole day-long experience, uh, the game was on, and it was just, man, I can't name a single player from the Tampa Bay Rays, but I love you guys. Uh, no, it was just, it was one of these things. And I think that it's not that the Astros aren't good, it's that because of decisions that they made, because of certain character choices or integrity choices that were made, it causes me to kind of root against them. It's not that I, I don't think that they are actually skilled players. It's not that I don't think that they actually deserve a chance to, to win on their own right. But there is this, this flaw, these decisions that were made. And even though there didn't seem to be much discipline about it, so many people are kind of happy for a version of crowd justice. You know, uh, good, I'm glad that they lost. They deserve to lose because when they won, it wasn't fair. There's a sense of character and integrity that is deeply flawed in this story. We've all seen different times when individuals or teams have been propped up by their popularity or their performance, but the integrity didn't quite match what they needed to continue going. Uh, I can think of more than a few singers and musical artists that have catalogs of songs that are unbelievable. And then information comes out about choices that they made, either in the past or even currently. And, and there's kind of this weird dissonance of how do I... How do I appreciate or enjoy uh, what this person has created knowing that there is this dissonance from who they are and the way that they, they live their lives? Um, it's not hard to get caught up in the whirlwind of charisma in order to overlook someone's wrongdoing simply because we like them. I would imagine people from Houston have a really difficult time balancing out the knowledge of what the team did or the players did with this sense of Houston Astros pride and wanting the team to be successful. This isn't a new story. Uh, I've found myself trying to justify uh, singers' behavior and musicians' behavior or actors' behavior because of my love for what they have produced. I've found myself trying to justify a B-letter grading on a restaurant because I really want tacos. It's like, I mean, what, what does it take to give a B? I mean, it's, it can't be that bad. There's a sense of what they are making balanced with the poor choices. Uh, it, it's a difficult thing. And I think for those of us who are parents, we do this with our kids a lot. We love our kids deeply. We see so much potential in them, but it's hard to come down and to speak against character flaws or to discipline in a way that helps them grow, that helps them grow past it. Now, some of today, we've been talking a lot at Family Month that, you know, it's, we're talking some about parenting, but really what we're talking about is not just parenting kids, but also parenting ourselves. And these things that we want to instill in our kids, many of us, we didn't have homes or families or uh, parents or adults that would be able to instill these things in us. And so we have work to do. We've got makeup work to kind of go back and recreate some of these realities. And I think that part of us that wants to overlook some of these flaws 
in other people is because we hope that other people will overlook our flaws. Uh, we see the mistakes very clearly. We, we see all of our shadows and all of our poor choices and all of our mistakes. And, and so sometimes it can get difficult to want to come down on somebody else's choices because I know like, well, I, I've made some of those choices. And, and so we want to overlook it because we want other people to overlook our own flaws and still to accept us. And nobody wants their kids to, to crash and burn to become shallow or self-centered people. And nobody wants that for themselves either. But lack of character, lack of integrity, always makes itself known at some point. You may have somebody in mind, uh, somebody you work with, somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood. Uh, maybe it's, a, like I said, an actor or a singer or an athlete or a politician. And there is a sense that, that we know that a lack of character always ends up making itself known. The Bible has a lot to say about this. One of the verses I want to look at briefly is Proverbs 10, verse 9. Uh, the writer says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Uh, there's kind of this ominous vibe <laughs> to this, this verse, this, this sense of uh, it will be made known. The things that are done in the dark will eventually be brought into the light. A lack of integrity, we, we may be able to get to a certain distance or a certain amount of space forward, but at some point it always makes itself known. And here's the thing. I talked a little bit about this before we started our service, but today what we're talking about is this idea of discipline, which has got to be one of the least fun things to write or preach a sermon about. Uh, when we come to church and, and when we come to scriptures and even for us in our own hearts and our minds, uh, how many of you guys have decided, you know what? I, I want to do like a week-long Bible study or a month-long Bible. I'm going to take my small group through a Bible study that talks about discipline. Uh, that's not our favorite topic when it comes to our faith. It's like, you know what? Let's talk about grace. That's a good one. Uh, let's talk about uh, the blessings that God has promised to bestow upon us. Let's talk about uh, all of these good things, these fun things, these, these things that we really appreciate. But none of us, none of us really long for discipline. None of us naturally want to choose discipline. And when it comes to disciplining ourselves or disciplining our kids, it is a difficult topic. And I don't speak of this as someone who has it figured out. I don't speak of this of someone who had it modeled well for him as a child. It was absolutely not modeled well for me. Um, I still struggle with it in my own home with my kids. I struggle with it in regards to myself and, and recognizing what that looks like for me. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at a story in the Old Testament. It's a scripture, it's a passage really uh, about someone who really screwed up their kids uh, because sometimes it just makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves to know that other people have done worse. Uh, that can't be a Christian thing to say, but uh, that's just the real thing to say. So what I want to do is I want to look at uh, a story. Uh, it's about King David. Uh, you guys may know King David, one-time shepherd who became a giant slayer. He was anointed to become king years and years, 17 years before the current king actually uh, stepped down from the throne. Um, David, King David stole another man's wife, and then to make it all okay, he had that man killed. Uh, King David wrote half, over half of the Psalms. 
this King David, who uh, we recognize there are these amazing things, and then there are these tragic things. He made these poor choices. Uh, not even poor. I mean, that's generous. He made terrible choices. And at the same time, God was able to call David a man after his own heart. And so there is something that is possible with making bad, broken, painful, wrong choices, having flaws and mistakes, and still being able to be redeemed. Well, King David had kids. One of his uh, son's names was Absalom. It's kind of a fun name to say. Let's all say it together. If you guys are watching online, let's say Absalom on three. One, two, three. Absalom. It's like, uh, yeah. Okay, I'm just going to keep going. Um, but in 2 Samuel chapter 14, we, we kind of are introduced a little bit to Absalom. Uh, in verse 25, it says, and I'm going to read a lot. Uh, a lot of what we're going to be doing today is looking at this story. So there's going to be a lot of passages. And it's, it's a crazy story that has a warning in it for all of us. It says, in all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him, which I really resonate with personally. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, It says in verse 26, whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it was too heavy for him. He would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Which, you know, I mean, that's the real standard right there. It's a little bit of a weird thing, but we'll get back to this. This man was beautiful. He was without blemish from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. It talks about just kind of uh, how pleasing he was to look at. He was very healthy uh, in regards to hair growth, uh, had a ton of hair, and was super proud of his hair. He'd only cut it once a year. Uh, And everybody essentially really just thought uh, highly of him in a lot of ways. He had a lot going for him. 2 Samuel chapter 15, a few verses later, verse 1, it says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Now, before we go on, uh, nobody would provide themselves with a chariot and horses and a garrison of 50 men. This was something that a king would have, and a king would essentially be given this. Absalom is the son of the king, and what he's doing is he's using his relationship, his dad's money, his, his power that he has, that he hasn't actually earned at this point. And he's saying, now it's time for me to have a chariot. Now it's time for me to have a a, a group of 50 soldiers to run ahead of me. Absalom believes that he deserves these things, even though he hasn't actually earned them yet. A lot of other people uh, throughout the story, it's really, it's a pretty epic tale, but a lot of other people see some of the character flaws and they, they bring things up to David, but the king never wants to address it with his son. Um he kind of rationalizes it because Absalom is, he's, he's my son. It's, he'll be okay. He'll figure things out. I think a lot of times we kind of make these excuses for ourselves or maybe even for our own kids, a sense of, and they'll, they'll figure it out. It's a rough patch, but they're going to get there. But the reality is, is that we learn patterns as a kid that, that chase us into adulthood. I'm still trying to undo some of those patterns in my own life. The story goes on, Second Samuel um, Verse uh, two, he says, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, remember Absalom is out at the gate before people can even get inside. Absalom would call out to them, what town are you from? He would answer, 
your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. He would essentially kind of cut them off before they could get in and say, hey, you know what? I'm on your side, but there's just nobody inside that's going to be able to hear your case right now. So it's basically just me. Like, I'm, I'm the best you've got. Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom, imagine six foot six, buff, flowing hair, Absalom would reach out his hand, take a hold of whoever approached him, and kiss them. Who wouldn't like this person? Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom is this person that he didn't really have a right to what he was taking. He didn't actually have the, the authority to step into the position that he was stepping into. And he was starting to sow this distrust and this, this uh, disloyalty to the king by saying, there's nobody there and I would love to help. And, and maybe if people would say something, maybe I could get appointed to be the judge. And then I would actually be able to help you as much. I mean, I would love to do it, but I just, I need, you know, he's cultivating this malicious uh, behavior. He's manipulating people to turn them against his father, King David. Absalom is confident and competent and charismatic with very nice hair, but he lacks character. He lacks the integrity uh, of becoming who he truly longs to be, and he's trying to cut at things. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get what he wants, no matter who it hurts, including his own family. People close to David see it, and they say it, but David doesn't address it. And I think that uh, what this is, and as I've read and studied other authors and theologians say that they think that this probably happened because David had a different relationship with his own father. David was the youngest of all of the sons in his family, and, and David was never really allowed to do uh, much of what his older brothers got to do. And even when um, the prophet came to anoint David as the king, uh, David's father was the most surprised out of everybody that it was David and not his older brothers. It's just David. David can't do this. He's not good enough. He's the youngest one. He's the smallest one. And so some people think that because David grew up in this setting where his father was hard on him and, and didn't really believe in him, that what happens is we swing the pendulum the other way, and then we have our own kids. It's like, you know what? My kid's going to get to do whatever he wants. You know what? My kid is going to know that I'm not against him. My kid's going to have freedom like I never had the freedom. Uh, there's this sense we can, we can tell what's happening here and we can kind of resonate with that because many of us have experienced that in our own lives. I know I've experienced this in my life. I do this with my two sons. There are things that I do. There are ways that I interact with them. There are things that are important to me that when I am at my healthiest and I'm able to look and see, I recognize the reason why I care so much about this is because my pendulum is swinging so far away from the home that I was raised in and the way that my dad would explain this or teach this or care for this. And, and sometimes that's good because we want to create a sense of health, but if it's unchecked, any extreme is unhealthy. So we may be trying to right a wrong that we grew up in, but we're just creating new problems. I wonder 
how many of us have had this same challenge. None of these uh, things necessarily are unique to David. These are all things that we struggle with. And there's an author, we've been using a lot of his research over the last few weeks, Dr. Tim Elmore. And he said this, he says that dysfunction evolves when we elevate emotional wants over developmental needs. It creates dysfunction. When we choose to to value or prioritize the things that we want emotionally over top of the things that we need developmentally. And and this obviously makes sense as we, you know, we can connect the dots and think about this as parents with our kids, but this is true of every relationship. We do this in every situation. We do this in parenting. We do this in dating where we elevate our emotional desires over what is the healthiest thing developmentally for the relationship. We do this in our marriages. We do this in our adult families with our adult siblings. We, we take our emotional desires, whether it's the desire to be attached or whether it's the desire to disattach. That's not a word, but just roll with it. Uh, we take these things and we, and we tend to lean in and we say, I'm going to choose the emotional desire over the developmental need, over what's actually healthiest in this relationship, what's actually healthiest for me. One of the New Testament writers puts it really clearly when she said this in Hebrews chapter 12, um, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. No discipline seems uh, pleasant at the time, but painful. In the moment, it's not what anybody wants. In the moment, it's painful for the kid. It's painful for the parent. It's painful for the spouse. It's painful for the adult siblings that are trying to set up healthy boundaries. No sense of discipline is ever fun in that moment. And I promise it's not fun to preach on it on a Sunday morning, but it is so crucial that we start to understand how valuable and how necessary it is in our relationship to have a sense of discipline so that we don't just lean in a crooked way towards our emotional desires, but we actually choose the developmental health of each of the relationships. It's not just the kids. It's us as we are adults in our relationships. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's not fun to discipline your kids. Oftentimes it really is. I've learned this. My parents always used to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. It's like, I don't think it does. This hurts a lot. But as a parent now, and I discipline in different ways, but there is, it, it's hard. It, it is hard for me to discipline my kids because I see that there is a, a glimmer in their immediate response of feeling like I have betrayed them in some way, like I don't care about them or care for them or love them in some way. It could be no further from the truth. The discipline is there because of my love for them. It is painful, especially because half the time when I'm disciplining my kid, it's taking away something like screen time. And then I've got to entertain my kids. Just kidding. A little bit of a joke. If you can't tell on the internet. A little bit of a joke. Some truth as well, but a little bit of... It's obviously not enjoyable for the kids having to walk through the discipline, 
And again, this is not just for parents with kids. This is for all of us that are in relationships. And obviously we don't discipline uh, our spouse or we don't discipline our friends or our adult family members in the same way. But when it comes to this idea of how do we set up healthy healthy boundaries and how do we cultivate character in, in our relationships, it is not fun to do that. And when you start to put boundaries in place, it almost always, and I would say 99.9% of the time, that person gets angry at us and feels betrayed or hurt, or they start to say things about us that are simply not true because healthy boundaries and what is uh, what we choose um, that is beneficial for our developmental needs as adults in our marriages and our family relationships, it almost always always hurts in that moment. But there's a promise that says later on, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It helps us learn a new way to do things. It's uncomfortable, but if we stay the course and do what is good, even when it doesn't feel good, the reward is worth it on the other side. And unfortunately, if we don't, the consequences are often painful and destructive. They're painful in our marriages. It doesn't mean it'll fail, but is it going to have that sense of joy and peace and fullness that you long for? It's painful in our friendships. It doesn't mean that the friendship is going to crumble, but is it really the friendship that you long for? It's painful in our adult family relationships. It doesn't mean that we don't talk to them, but, but we get this sense that there's something cracked, that there's something missing. And when we lean into our immature excuses and lack of character, it creates a predictable path. We've seen it and people in our lives, and we get to look at it in Absalom's life too. I'm going to skim a little bit of this. I don't have all these verses on the screen because, like I said, it's a story that spans chapters. But we left off with the very attractive Absalom with all the flowing hair. Uh, I think of, uh, I can't think of his name now, but I'm sure one of the ladies here could help me out. Who's the guy from Aquaman? Thank you, ladies. I don't know if you guys could hear that online. There's a chorus. Oh, Jason. Yeah, Jason Momoa. Yeah, I know. I know who you're talking about. I think I've heard his name before. But this, this is what we're picturing. This Absalom, there could not a flaw be found. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Second Samuel chapter 14, Absalom is trying to get the attention of a man who works for his father. He sends somebody. He says, hey, bring him to me. I think his name is Joab, but I'm going to miss it. Yeah, he sends uh, somebody, bring Joab to me, and Joab doesn't come. And so he sends another man, bring Joab to me, and Joab still doesn't come. And so Absalom says, okay, go light all of his fields on fire. So the man does what his uh, leader tells him. He does what Absalom says. He lights all of his fields on fire. And then Joab comes and says, hey, why'd you light my fields on fire? And he doesn't even address it. He just immediately goes into this sense of his frustration with his dad. There's this deep sense of character flaw, of this sense of uh, deserving, this idea that he can do whatever he wants and nobody can get upset. And he literally says that. He says, uh, essentially, he says, I want you to explain to me why my father is doing this. And if you think I made a mistake, you let my father know and we'll see if anything happens. I mean, this deep sense of uh, deserving something that he has not earned. It goes on. 
In chapter 15, Absalom sends out all of these secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And there were 200 men from Jerusalem that accompanied Absalom. He's, he's traveling through town and he's trying to convince everybody that he is the rightful ruler, that he wants everybody to choose him over his father. He has 200 men traveling with him. They were invited as guests and they went along with him innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. They had no idea what his plans were. But all of a sudden, as Absalom rides into town with over 200 people alongside of him, and all of these trumpets start blaring out, Absalom is the king. All of a sudden, it start, they start to realize, oh, we're being used. We're being used for something that is wrong, something that's unhealthy. There's another passage, uh, part of the story in chapter 16, which is uh, incredibly brutal, but essentially Absalom decides at this time, kings and kingdoms, there was a lot of concubines and things like that. And, and uh, there was this reality for him that he wanted to uh, cause division between himself and his father, and he wanted to win the hearts over his people uh, to get them on his side. And so he decides to make all these terrible choices with them. And his father never even came down on him about it. And then in verse, chapter 18, verse 5, King David commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. They start to realize how much chaos and pain he was causing in the city, in the kingdom. And they realize they need to bring him in. They need to put an end to this. And David's last words as they go out are, be gentle with him for my sake. The words of a father. Please don't come down too hard on him. I get that they have caused pain, that they have caused people to die. I get that they have done terrible things in the temple. I get that they have been manipulating people against me and causing division. But please don't come down too hard on him. It's a, it's a painful story, a picture of the lack of discipline, character, of integrity. Ultimately, the child's self-centered behavior escalates. People ultimately lose respect for his father. People start to look at King David differently because he won't do anything about his crazy kid. The child wreaks havoc on everybody that is in his wake. Thousands of innocent people end up dying because a dad wouldn't confront his son about his character. And the lack of boundaries that the son has ultimately destroys him. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, this is the end of this portion of the story. It says, now Absalom happened to meet David's men. They were in a battle at this point. Absalom was riding his mule. And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. I mean, even the mule didn't respect him. There's this crazy poetic justice, if you will, of this value that he had on who he was and the way he looked and, and the perception and that ultimately that that was the thing that was his downfall. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Like you can almost picture like we've been in a battle trying to resolve this and He's just hanging in an oak tree by his hair. Um, Joab said to the man who told him this, what, you saw him? 
Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And then 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this is such a tragic story. Um, this is where we're going to stop in the reading of it, but it goes on. And, and when David finds out, he is absolutely heartbroken. And in one sense, it's understandable because it's his son. But ultimately what happens is that Joab comes in and he says, David, King David, he takes all of the courage from him to do this. He says, you are mourning the death of someone who has destroyed your kingdom. You are choosing his flaws over all of the people who will serve at your order. And it is devaluing everybody else. It is a tragic story. Nobody in the kingdom mourned the death of Absalom except for his father. The people that did mourn were mourning on behalf of David. The reality is no matter how old people get, our kids are still our kids. Obviously, my kids aren't that old. But even as I look at my family, my adult family, it doesn't matter how many years go by, it's, it's still my family. There are still these things that, that I care deeply for them, and, and I allow certain things to exist, not because it's good, but because it feels easier in that way. We, we don't want harm to come to them. We don't want pain to come to them. So we start to have to ask ourselves, how do we build in discipline? How do we build in character and integrity into our kids? And then for those of us that are adults, how do we build this into ourselves? Because many of us, we haven't had this modeled for us. I heard one person say this phrase. They said, we're not raising kids. We're raising adults. The things that we do now is forming who they will be later. Those who aren't held accountable end up not knowing how to hold themselves accountable. A lack of self-discipline leads to self-destruction. So Dr. Elmore, he had seven practical ways to see if we are building in a sense of discipline and maturity into our kids. Self-discipline, I should say. Uh, how are we building this in? So there's seven things, and I'm going to put them all on one slide together at the same time um, because it's just a little bit easier that way. The first thing that he said is uh, to see if your kids are able to keep long-term commitments. One key sign of maturity, he said, is the ability to delay gratification. They can commit to continue doing what is right even when they don't feel like it. Uh, I had this, um, my son was four years old on a soccer field and he wanted to quit. And I said, you get back out there. I was kidding. Uh, But I did. I said, we're not going to quit. I know that it's not fun, 
but it's only been half of one practice. Uh, we're going to keep trying this. There is this sense of how do we continue doing the things we committed to? We understand this with our kids, but I got to say, how many of us as, as adults feel like these are easy things? Able to keep long-term commitments. The second one is they're, uh, they're unshaken by flattery or criticism. He said, as people mature, they sooner or later understand that nothing is as good as it seems and nothing is as bad as it seems. Mature people can receive compliments or criticism without letting it ruin them or sway them into a distorted view of themselves. The third one, they possess a spirit of humility. Humility parallels maturity, Dr. Elmore says. He says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less And mature people aren't consumed with drawing attention to themselves. The fourth one, he said, is that their decisions are based on character, not feelings. Mature people, whether students or adults, they live by values. They have principles that guide their decisions, and their character becomes the master over their emotions. Fifth one is that they express gratitude consistently. The sixth one is that they prioritize others before themselves. And the seventh one is that they seek wisdom before acting. It says a mature, piece, uh, a mature person is teachable. They don't presume they have all the answers. The wiser they get, the more they realize they need more wisdom. Now, I got to say, he talked about this uh, and the idea of parenting. He talked about this in, the, in relation to kids but again, these seven things, man, I, I feel like I could use a lot more of some of them, a little more of others. When we talk about families, when we talk about parenting, when we talk about marriage, uh, we're not actually talking about how to fix or change someone else. What we talk about is how to fix, how to heal, how to grow, how to develop uh, our own character develop internally for us because the best way to be a or to raise great kids is to be a great adult. The best way to to teach someone how to do something is by showing them how it's done. It's not just saying do it. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Not just saying do what I say, not what I do, but it's actually living these things out. And so it's not that these seven things are important for kids to understand. These seven things are important for us to understand. Because we recognize that we are also still broken and that we are inviting God's spirit to help transform our hearts and our minds to live a different way, to grow a different way so that we can be healthy parents, so that we can recognize that no discipline is fun in the moment. But after a while, you will reap a harvest of righteousness if you live by its rule. We recognize that with our kids. We recognize that with the boundaries that we set up in our relationships and our dating and our marriage and with our families. We recognize these things and we have to choose to grow in this direction. The greatest gift we can give our children is to be a healthy parent. The greatest gift that we can give our spouse spouse, is to be a healthy adult. The greatest gift we can give our communities is to be a healthy church. So we choose these things because it's God's desire for us to grow in these ways, but ultimately because we also recognize the impact that it has on the people that God has entrusted in our lives. Let's bow our heads and pray together.
Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized, or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa, and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.